This show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now, and it's a damn fine read. You can order it on Amazon.com, and you can also get it on Audible. It will change your consciousness. Also, come check me on the Rebirth Tour, Harrogate, December the 12th, Newcastle, 14th of December, Brixton, December the 19th. This show has got to be seen to be believed, and I mean that in a good way. Tickets are available on uh, russellbrand.com. Go check that out. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Luke Harding is a British author and foreign correspondent for The Guardian who's reported from Delhi, Berlin and Moscow and covered wars in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya. His books include Mafia State, in which he discusses his experience in Russia and the political system under Vladimir Putin, as well as The Snowden Files, a very expensive poison, and his latest, a New York Times number one bestseller, Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win, uh, a book that has captured the imagination of the United States of America. It's doing phenomenally well. Tell me why this book is so successful, please. I think because it tells the Russian half of this story. Basically, we have a, a conspiracy, you can call it an alleged conspiracy, involving a group of Americans, many working for, for, for Trump's campaign and indeed allegedly Trump himself, and, and a group of Russians. And um, quite a lot is known about the Americans in this story, about Donald Trump, his son, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, the, the president's son-in-law, and so on. But, but less is known about the oligarchs, the intelligence officers, uh, and also the fact that, the, that what happened last year um, owes a big debt to, to the Cold War and, I would say, to the methods of the KGB. Well, I'm obviously intrigued because while you were explaining that, it becomes clear that what we're talking about is the is how power operates covertly and the kind of alliances that are formed in order to achieve power. Sometimes, uncon as in this case, unconventional or at least novel relationship. So, uh, well, to explain to me, uh, please, Luke. What are the key relationships that are determining Trump's ascent? Well, the story goes back a long way, but I, I think to explain it, in a way, you need to kind of explain how how, how Vladimir Putin thinks. And and I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but I spent four years in Moscow working as a correspondent between 2007 and 2011, and I kind of got to know their kind of rather dark techniques, if you like. And um, the thing about Vladimir Putin is he's he's a kind of classic. KGB spy. Um, he he spent his career in the KGB, some of it in communist East Germany. And his kind of worldview is is predicated on the idea that, that America is the enemy, um, which quite often during the Cold War it was, um, that Russia is encircled by hostile forces. Um, and one thing the KGB used to do a lot of is to try and influence politics in the West, European politics and American politics in particular, and, and to devise kind of strategies. And, and the, the, the funny thing is that generally these operations back in the 1980s were, were not terribly successful. But the age of Facebook and Twitter, plus the fact that there are all of these divisions 
in America anyway, um, I think really opened up all sorts of possibilities, uh, especially with Donald Trump, who, who for Vladimir Putin was the perfect candidate. So what we ha- what you're saying is that because of Putin's experience as a politician and as a sort of a covert agent, you have a, a type of politics that we, is what more covert than it would usually be. What is it that is why is it significant that uh, like a president comes to power uh, via relationships with a, a, a previously uh, a state that it was previously in opposition to rather than, say, through alliances with transnational corporations that have explicit interests in the country where the president has ascended? Well, I, I mean, I, I think transnational corporations don't hack stuff. Uh, now, now, a lot of people have kind of, the Americans hack stuff, the British hack stuff, the Russians hack stuff. I think what was different about the election last year was that that, um, it, that if you believe Washington, that the essentially kind of Kremlin hackers, or quite often these guys are sort of freelancers co-opted by the state, um, broke into Democratic Party servers into Hillary Clinton's campaign, and uh, by the way, into kind of Donald Trump's campaign as well. And they just released one set of emails at moments of kind of maximum embarrassment for for Hillary um, in the summer of last year, just before she had a kind of convention, and again in October. And what we can't say that that Trump won thanks to Putin, but what we can say was that Putin was kind of pushing, trying to push him across the line, and that th- these kind of kind of hacks helped now now you might say well you know everyone hacks that's true but this this was a kind of an attempt if you like to kind of influence the domestic political process from far away so i think it was kind of different and i also think it was spectacularly successful and i suppose it's surprising because america's usually a country where it's generally they like to be the people that's doing the influencing of other people's (laughs) national politics as opposed to being the recipient or the victim of so i suppose what within it is the idea that power on a geopolitical level is shifting is that something that's interesting about it well i i think it's i i think it's not so much that kind of power is shifting because russia let's face it is not a especially powerful country it's still a nuclear armed state uh and it's got plenty of tanks but 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 economically it's it's not not a powerhouse and it hasn't really in terms of ideas it hasn't really kind of developed any great ideas i think what it is is it's actually a story about opportunism that that if you are a kind of unscrupulous sort of sovereign power um that you can do a lot of stuff uh, quite cheaply i mean that the, the hacking for example was done with phishing emails that that people clicked on in the middle of the night when they were half asleep um and some of the other stuff was kind of relatively low budget but it it's about a sort of classic KGB doctrine it's about exploiting um the the kind of weakness in western society and turning it to your own advantage um, I mean, I'm not saying Putin kind of created all the problems in America. They, they pre-existed him, but he certainly kind of took advantage of it. I see. And I, I suppose, look, the perspective I have is that there's, you know, Trump, obviously, like anybody who's interested in politics or current affairs, he's sort of this wonderfully new grotesque, grotesque avatar upon which we can sort of hang our intrigue and our fascination. But for... Like you know, I'm really interested because of the depth of your experience as a journalist, the time you've spent in Russia, your knowledge of the Edward Snowden case. What is it that, in particular, about Trump is uh, distressing? Because, like for me, as a person without the breadth and depth of knowledge that you have, it seems that he's merely an amplification of pre-existing phenomena, just a more visible version of what's been sort of happening anyway. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think that's true, but but he's also someone um, who the, the the Soviet state and its Russian successor was very keen to cultivate. I mean, the, the, this is a matter of fact and history, and and the thing is that we're supposed to keep on talking about the Cold War, but <clears throat> Donald Trump did something fairly unusual in the 1970s. He married a woman from communist Czechoslovakia. And we know from declassified archive material that sort of Czech spies kept a very close eye on the couple in Manhattan and um, uh, talked to Ivana's father, who still lived uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and and what, whatever they had on the Trumps would have been fed to, to Moscow as part of a kind of a routine thing. Um, and you then fast forward to 1987, and the the Soviet government invites Donald Trump to to visit Moscow on an all expenses paid trip. And and that was one of the things I kind of discovered was that the Soviet ambassador literally got off a plane from Moscow to New York, went with his daughter to Trump Tower, saw Mr. Trump, and said, "Mr. Trump, you you have the most beautiful building in America," you know, and sort of schmoozed him. He did the kind of schmoozy thing. One imagines um, Trump would be susceptible to schmoozing. Well, so the daughter said it was like honey to a bee, basically, that Trump kind of melted, that, that he liked this kind of flattery and recognition. There was a series of lunches and then an official invite. The Soviet government, you know, will bring you to Moscow, etc. Now, what, what's sort of significant about that? I mean, two things. First of all, the people who arranged this travel were in-tourist. Now, in-tourist was a Soviet travel agency. It was basically the KGB. I've spoken to kind of defectors who, who say, you know, that the travel agency was the KGB. So we can say, without being hyperbolic, the KGB brought Donald Trump to Moscow in 1987. Um, and then he was staying just off Red Square, not far away from, from, from dead Lenin and from, from sort of famous sort of pantheons of Soviet heroes. And, and there his room would have been bugged. Allegedly, he, uh-huh. was, he was discussing hotel building. But in reality, this was um, a classic... It's called a kind of cultivation exercise. It doesn't mean that, that, that he was recruited and was kind of striding around Red Square wearing a, a colonel's uniform, but it means that they were interested in him. Um, and we also know from kind of leaked papers from that period why they were interested in him. They were basically the head of the KGB was berating uh, his, his officers all around the world saying, you know, we need to do more to recruit Americans. And they circulated a personality questionnaire for the kind of people they were interested in. They wanted people who were vain, uh, ambitious, narcissistic, um, you know, adulterous, perhaps had affairs that could be exploited, were poor analysts, and so on. And you kind of work your way down the list. And Mr. Trump, God bless him, ticks every single box. So the thing is, th- 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 there's a there's a big backstory of kind of courtship. Now, th- th- that doesn't mean th- that, I mean, we don't know to what degree Trump kind of cooperated in all this. But what, what is very curious is after this kind of trip, about six weeks later, when he's back in the US, he takes out a series of front page adverts in three newspapers criticizing Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. And he announces, wait for this, he's thinking about running for president. Doesn't happen. Soviet Union collapses and, and his political ambitions take another kind of three decades to flourish. But what you have to understand is that these techniques, meanwhile, Putin's in East Germany trying to do the same thing. He's trying to recruit students from Latin America. The, 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 these techniques are old techniques updated for for 2016-2017. When you say these techniques, the do you mean the re- relationship between Russia and Trump and Trump's uh, sort of uh, aggressive anti-establishment announcement? I, I mean the kind of wooing of people who might be useful. And and it's a bit like, it's not that, that Soviet intelligence knew 30 years ago he'd be president of the United States. Of course not. But they saw he had possibilities, that, that he might be interesting. And, and he, there were a range of targets, but... 
What's interesting is that Trump keeps coming back to Moscow. He does again in the 90s. And then most famously, he does it in 2013 when he hosts the Miss Universe Beauty Contest. And he's hanging out with oligarchs, with mafia guys, with people from the presidential administration, all of whom are slapping him on the back. And and, and really, um, if you believe the the famous dossier by Christopher Steele, the sort of British spy who set this whole thing off, the kind of the cultivation operation resumed big time about five years ago hmm. and culminated with the Russians helping him. Um, I'm not saying they made him win because millions of people voted for him, but helping, helping him across the finishing line in last year's presidential election. Yeah, because it does seem like, obviously, uh, the fruition of a 30-year relationship. It seems... It's an on-off. I mean, it's not continuous, but on on and off. Because prior to the election, the relationship between... sort of Covert relationships between Russia and figures in American public life wasn't really a story that we were that interested in. Is it? Is it something that you... Well, 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 no, it's because it it wasn't happening. I mean, that there hadn't been very successful. And... um, with, with with Trump, I mean, it was. I've talked I've talked to Americans who, who are kind of in the intelligence world who, who who are more or less doffing their hat and saying this is one of the greatest espionage operations we've ever seen. I mean, that they, they they admit it was kind of breathtaking. And when I was sort of writing my book, as well as trying to write a kind of thriller, because it is a thriller, although it's all true, there there were a couple of questions to answer, and one of them is why is Donald Trump so nice about Vladimir Putin when he's so rude? About everybody. I, mean, I don't know if he's been rude about you, but he's been rude about Theresa May last week. He's been rude about the Germans. He's rude about his Republican Party allies. He's rude about everybody. But the only constant thing, like the sun rising in the morning, is that, that, that he's always nice about Mr. Putin. He says he's very smart. He says he believes him. When, when, when Putin says, you know, I had nothing to do with the hacking, Donald, I, I believe him. Well, and no one else does, but seemingly he believes the KGB agent, the X one. Um, and this is very strange. And I, I can kind of predict confidently that Trump will never criticize Putin. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? And, and the answer, at least according to the Steele dossier, is because the Russians have got a whole load of compromising material. It's called Compromat on Trump, dating back to the 1980s, technical stuff, readouts of his conversations, agents' reports, um, and uh, and also allegations that, that Trump watched a kind of exotic sex show when he was in Moscow in 2013, which may or may not be true. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, Putin has enormous leverage over the president of the United States. And that's a remarkable thing. It is remarkable. Uh, it seems, um, gosh, compromise. I can't imagine what compromising material would be constituted of, given the stuff that he explicitly like says himself like and the stuff that bounces off him you know is i suppose what's difficult about what's challenging or intrigue part or part of the intrigue is like like you said it's like the reference points are like uh, the 1980s and the cold war and john le carre's written to you it seems there's something slightly nostalgic but then the entire atmosphere of the type of uh sort of ethno-nationalism and the sort of bravado of trump and sort of other emergent strands of uh, nationalistic politics elsewhere yeah. seem to have something quite retrospective about them so it's an extraordinary move mo- uh, mood that seems to be um, prevailing at the moment i suppose what's um in like you have mentioned what's interesting to me is like millions of people did vote for donald trump the the idea of russian intervention prior to this would have seemed kind of bizarre yeah and like and like obviously, this is a very well-researched book, and you're obviously right. But what I suppose is like 
interesting to me is what are the other reasons that somebody like Donald Trump would become president? What kind of culture becomes susceptible to a figure like Donald Trump? What does it tell us? I mean, do you think that the that the involve that your book is saying that without the involvement of Russia, you would not have Donald Trump as the president of the United States, and that's no, what we should focus on. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not quite saying that because I think I think it's kind of multi-causal. There are, there are all sorts of reasons, mm. and as you say, um, millions of people voted for him, and, and clearly it, it's got a lot to do with with post 2008 with the financial crash. You mentioned global corporations, the fact that there are large numbers of people who who, who just feel they've been kind of cheated by the system and have mm. saw Trump as some kind of alternative, and all of that is right, and all of that's got nothing to do with Russia, but. It's also true that the, the hacking uh, of this Democratic Party stuff really helped him. I mean, it was a beautiful kind of campaign weapon. It, it sort it sort of undermined Hillary. And I mean, the curious thing about this whole story is that I, I'm pretty certain, uh, also having spoken to lots of people in Moscow, uh, that uh, Putin didn't think that Trump would win. That, that he was the kind of, for the Russians, he was the kind of candidate of chaos. He was the guy who was going to discredit Hillary so that when she became president, she would be weak she would she would be on the back foot and and meanwhile leaving Russia free to to do what it likes on the international stage. Now, of course, they kind of blew the doors off, and Trump became president, and um, that was great insofar as that the I mean I, I launched my book in the New, New York, but this kind of atmosphere of hyper partisanship in the states is is absolutely kind of raging. So all of that chaos is good for Putin, but on the other hand, the one thing he really wanted was for, for America under Trump to lift sanctions against Russia imposed on to, in 2014 by Obama following the war in Ukraine. And that hasn't happened because this scandal has just turned into a monstrously big thing and is being investigated by Robert Mueller, who is, who is kind of beating a path to, to Trump's story. He's the special prosecutor looking at all this stuff. Um, my concern is is that in this diagnosis of uh, Russian involvement being integral to the ascent of Trump, other lessons may be missed. Like you said about the partisan atmosphere in America, I was recently in America and I sort of sensed a similar thing. Um, do you think that this sort of um, kind of willingness to blame like it, it albeit like you know like I, like I said to you it's obvious from the the steel report and the work that you have done that there is truth in what you're saying but um you know like do you think that there's a sort of a, possibly a sort of a, a kind of a desire for democratic left sort of center left leaning um, liberal thinking people to to sort of find a reason why why Donald Trump is president that isn't because of the massive failure of liberalism to take care of the people that it was supposed to represent yeah i, I mean i mean i get that and and i think you're you're i think you're basically Correct, but but it, it, it's it's a complex world, and two things can be true simultaneously. Liberalism, as you put it, may have failed. Hillary Clinton may have been a weak candidate who failed to inspire. Um, Bernie may have been given a tough time by the Democratic Party. Uh, Trump, let's face it, uh, f for all of his kind of uh, for, for all of his kind of recklessness, that there is something pretty mesmeric about listening to him speak, even if he only says the same thing four or five times. I mean, he does have a kind of rhetorical power you have aura almost you have to recognize all of that but that doesn't mean that the russians didn't help him and that the point is 
th- th- this is sort of seriousness. This is sort of serious because if you think about Watergate, you had one group of Americans. It was a relatively low-tech plot, Watergate. It was back in the 1970s with burglars and rubber gloves and lockpicks. <laughs> but you had one group of Americans smearing another group of Americans in a, in a totally disreputable way. And then Richard Nixon covering up afterwards. What you've got here is one group of Americans uh, basically invoking their a sort of traditional adversary uh, of the United States and getting them to help chop the legs off an opponent. Now, now that is different territory. I mean, I, I call my book Collusion, but we're sort of, we're not there yet, but we're kind of heading into the kind of treason zone. It's a lot more serious um, th- than a kind of domestic political squabble. And I think the worry is, despite the failure of liberalism, as you put it, is, is that what it tells us is that our democracies are more fragile uh, to external manipulation of all kinds than we might have thought. Yes, but also like in a way that's quite evident and obvious in terms of the experience of ordinary people in a sort of post-globalized world. The, like you know, because the sort of the, the like the analytical strand that would demonstrate like, that would suggest that the reason that Trump became popular is because he's. It's an emotional experience that people are voting for, like, sure. like, like voters are having. Like this guy seems to understand how I feel. Like while, while that doesn't make rational sense, I don't think we're dealing with rationale. Yeah, yeah but I mean, I mean that, that, that's that's the kind of crucial point, and that in a way is why it's so alarming. Is that is that that Trump is a kind of master of this emotionalism? I mean, I've got mm. people kind of one starring my review who've bought an egg whisk on Amazon and then put one star on my book even though they haven't read it or bought it, because they just don't like the idea in it. And, and it's, it's, it's the idea that it's, not, it's no longer important that what, what's true, what's kind of empirically real. What's important is what people can be made to believe. Uh, and, there's a, and the thing is, there's a great sort of relativist strand in, in, in Russian thinking and Soviet thinking. I mean, it was Vladimir Lenin, the, the guy behind the Bolshevik Revolution a century ago, who basically said that, that um, truth was subordinate to the class struggle. There was a kind of higher truth which outtruths the real truth of what, what's actually kind of going on. And in a way, what Putin has done is sort of cynically take that idea and reproduce it. So he doesn't need to um, persuade everybody that Donald Trump is, is, is a great guy and that he's a faithful husband and all the rest of it. But he just needs to kind of um, persuade a certain number of people that that's the case. And that truth that becomes a kind of meta-truth, if you're still with me. Um, and I, I think it's quite scary because ultimately it's a kind of where we are now is it's almost like an assault on on rationality and the idea of a of a, of a uni truth. If that sure, makes sense. Sure, but where but where does politics have to go but that place? You know, see, like in a way, the sort of treason, like you know, like whether or not it's treason for I mean, literally, is treason for a, another state to intervene in the democratic process of, of a, a second nation? Yes, of course it is. But like powerful entities continually intervene in the democratic process. So in a way, we're already dealing with that phenomena. Is just here. It's it's it seems quite defiant and bold. It's, oh bloody hell! And it's literally the Russians kind of, as well as this organization. Yeah, it, it's sort of high progressive. I mean, I I think it's funny, isn't it? Over the last year, that the Democrats have been in disarray, and let's face it, British politics hasn't been in in in, in great shape. And the funny thing is, it's been sort of I don't know. It's it's been people in civic society. It's been activists. It's it's been it's been investigative journalists like myself who've almost been kind of filling filling the gap and. I, I sort of make make kind of two quick pleas. One is, I think we need. I think in our trouble, confusing times, we need good method. We need to be evidential. We need to kind of admit when we're wrong. That facts might change, and, and we need to kind of be 
humble in the face of some very kind of complicated stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I would say is I would urge people to kind of buy newspapers. If you don't like The Guardian, buy something else or just contribute to news because we need... We we need people doing this stuff, I think, more than ever. But it feels to me like these categories are being challenged, the idea even of a nation state. I think people are starting to feel this doesn't work for me anymore. The, 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 the United States of America doesn't represent my interests. It's a kind of a veil that's placed between me and power. And now, like, so the, for me, that Trump becomes a sort of a gross, a grotesque example of what's preceded him. See, fact, like, this is something I've been mentioning ever since I heard it in, in this room, as a matter of fact. The um, academic Kai Hindi Andrews, the sort of sociologist, said... Donald Trump is a better president for African-Americans than Barack Obama because under Donald Trump, we are confronted with the truth of what politics actually is, what race in America actually is, rather than dealing with the temporal distraction that was, that was Barack Obama. Now, like, you know, I'm in no position either racially or academically to make such an assertion. But something about that resonated very deeply with me. And it seems like that while we sort of could get all anxious about the sort of which agencies are involved in organising who's in power. The key issue is, are ordinary people being given access to power? Are they able to control their lives? No. Were they able to prior to Donald Trump? No. Is Donald Trump sort of worse and a bit nasty seeming and madly sexist and in some instances vulgar and grotesque almost beyond imagination? Quite clearly. But what concerns me is this sort of attempt to sort of scramble backwards to look, just can we get back to where we were eight years ago when it was at least nice seeming people that were doing stuff less vividly? But th- th- but that's not my thesis. Um, and, and I, no, I, you've I, got a brilliant thesis uh, on the uh, involvement uh, of Russia. But like, you know, but, like, so, but what concerns <laughs> me is that how this will be used by neoliberal politicians in the United States of America to sort of try and reinstate what preceded Trump when the lesson that really needs to be learned is politics needs to radically shift. The way that power is organised needs to radically shift. And like, it's not like, you know, that it's just usher Tony Blair back in or Bill Clinton. No, no, that, that's, 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 cl- that's clearly not the answer. Um, I think, I, mean, I don't dis- disagree with you, but, but I, I sort of think um, one thing we need is we need good storytelling, actually. Um, you're talking about shifting power back to the people. We need to tell good stories. We need to, to in- engage people in, in this stuff because obviously it fascinates you and it fascinates me, but it leaves some people kind of cold. And I, I, I'm not sure that... that you know, the stories, the little mini stories that Donald Trump tells on Twitter are very powerful. They're very emotive. They get through to millions of people. But but um, there are other stories as well. And I think at the end of the day, my job is to try and, um, in the areas I understand, you know, Russia and also lots of stuff on offshore, on, on I did the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. Oh, wow. Is to is, is, you're, yeah you're yeah I did Snowden I did the, the, the WikiLeaks stuff I've done all, all these kind of, of the, bi- main ones. the big investigations of the last few years and I've sort of written books about most of them is to actually take these kind of quite complex themes and to tell them in in, in a in a really exciting and racy way it's non-fiction it's all true it's all it's all it's all grounded but so people can kind of read them not necessarily scholars or students of international relations but the kind of thing you can read on the beach. Or on a train. I've got two things that I want to do, like in this this next beat of the interview. One is I want you to, if you don't mind, read us what you think is the bit that exemplifies what you've just said. Then, like sort of populist, accessible thriller writing from this book, Collusion. And the other thing is, can you explain? Like the story of Edward Snowden is like uh, uh, like a sort of a heroic tale of our time. 
And I'd, I'd like to, you know, like sort of go, give this is precedes Donald Trump. You know, like this is like, you know, this sort of like exposure of corruption and the way that it was handled, the way that, yeah. the, the Don, that Donald Snow, the, 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 sorry, that Edward Snowden was exiled. You know, this all happens. Trump's not on the landscape at this point. This is all under Obama. This is in the pre- previous administration. Yeah. Can you explain? Tell us, like, you know, like using your uh, thriller and po- popular <laughs> skills a little about that. Uh, now, now you're teasing. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm encouraging. Sorry. Please. So, what do you want me to do? Sorry. Do the Snowden one first, because yeah, because he seems to me like a hero. I can get my chops around. Well, well I, I mean, the thing about Snowden is that he's a kind of classic whistleblower, and and um, uh, I mean, I, I read a book about him, and I'm kind of very admiring of him. Uh, essentially, what he was someone from inside the American intelligence community who realized, uh, to his kind of gradual horror, that the United States government and the UK, by the way, uh, and various kind of Anglo-Saxon partners were hoovering up all of our electronic stuff regardless of whether we were criminals or old ladies or students doing GCSEs. It was all being sucked up. Text messages, web searches, emails, and, 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 the kind of geolocation data you have from your iPhone, so where you've been, etc. All of that is recorded every two seconds. And there'd been no public debate or conversation or kind of reckoning as to whether it was appropriate. And the volumes had gone from small in about 2002 massive billions billions a day 30 billion plus items a day uh and he he blew the whistle he leaked the stuff to my newspaper the guardian he fled to hong kong uh and he's now living in exile in moscow he kind of got stuck there basically by mistake and i think he's a kind of heroic figure who kind of pulled across the curtain and showed us uh the real nature of 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 reality in in, in the 21st century and at least allowed us to have a kind of proper conversation with power about what's appropriate and not appropriate. Wow, that was brilliant. So, like, you know, if that's what's preceding Trump, like, how significant is the fissure that he represents? You know, because it's not like it, it, what preceded had any values anyway. These are these data captures. So, like, I, I can really understand how, like, that the, the uh, there is an appetite for Trump for a, a figure that's like, you know, these, you know, trust these people, you know, like, or drain the swamp. I can see how that kind of language is going to be resonant when it's in the ether anyway. That's what preceded him was an environment that required Edward Snowden. And when Edward Snowden does do that, it's not like, this guy's a hero, bring him back, let's have a parade, drape him in the Stars and Stripes. No, the guy goes and lives where? Russia. And yeah. who are now the villains uh, in this one. I, I mean, it's quite, it's quite interesting because, obviously, I, I wrote a book that the American intelligence community didn't much like. I, I think they might like this one a bit, a bit more because... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, essentially, because um, th- there are questions inside Washington. I mean, basically, what I was told having talked to sources here, here, here and, and in the States a lot, is that, you know, that there are a lot of Americans inside this intelligence establishment, let's call it that, if you like, who um, disagree with what the president's doing. I mean, generally, they tend to be kind of more right-leaning than, than, than left, but Obama, they may not like what he was doing, but, but essentially they recognize his right to do it. And the thing about Trump, what makes him different is that they are genuinely asking whether he's a patriot. Actually, whether he puts American values or however you want to call it first, American democracy first, or whether actually he puts his own personal and family interests above everything. And what deals, especially financial deals, he may have cut with Moscow, both recently and in the past. And so that, that we're in a very curious place. We're, we're in a sort of situation where we don't entirely know where the real loyalties of Donald Trump are. Yes. But what are these values? 
like like you know like so what are the values that he's breaching like now because i what i sense the energy that i sense that he is riding is a kind of an emergent rage coming from the feeling of nihilism coming from hold on a minute this none this isn't real none of it's true so like the you know like so when people are kind of like oh this guy's an anomaly or an, an outrage i feel like well what what are these values? I mean, of course, it's disgusting. Some of the things he said about women, some of the racist stuff, it's all disgusting. But when it comes to, like, what is this citadel that's being defended? Because it seemed like it was pretty disgusting anyway. And now I'm asking mm. you this as a person that knows a lot about international politics. Sure. So, like, you know, sure. But, I mean, you know, I'm not a politician. I kind of describe reality. But I don't know. I mean, I guess what I would say, I mean, if we can just sort of take America out of it, so it's not just kind of US facing and talk more generally. I mean, I, I sort of, I've, I've spent a lot of time in my kind of career as a reporter for The Guardian, as a foreign correspondent in war zones. I mean, I've, I've been in pretty sketchy right. places in Afghanistan and, and Libya and Iraq. And, uh, and actually, when you talk to ordinary people, they don't, I mean, I wouldn't say they're kind of nihilistic, they, they, but they do kind of want, they want sort of, decency they want kind of healthcare they want jobs they want their kids to have a future they want sort of uh they want governments that change i mean that that's the kind of key thing about governments is that one one lot has to go another lot has to come in and m- maybe i'm so fantastically old fashioned for your for your program but i actually do believe <laughs> in in kind of yeah, you're brilliant basic human rights and universal values which apply everywhere whether it's america russia I agree. um central london or wherever, and I think yeah. we've slightly lost track of that. I, and I actually think, but you see, like that, these places, you're a foreign correspondent: yeah. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, all countries chewed up by this thing that we're trying to preserve and cherish. No, no, I mean we're not trying to cheer up interventionism. I mean we're not trying to kind of defend kind of these kind of grandiose, um, misconceived, imperialistic projects. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm starting from a position of, you know, if you if you're a war reporter. Actually, it's a very easy thing to do. It's much more easy to report on war than it is to report on Brexit because you just talk to ordinary people. You ask them stories. You ask them about their lives, their kids, why they fled, you know, what they saw, who they met, who pointed a gun at them. And you tell those stories. That's what my point about storytelling. I just think it's really important. It's kind of elemental that we tell the right stories, that we tell kind of pro-human stories, but that that we, we try and seek the truth rather than a truth and also that we don't totally lose faith in in humanity and kind of succumb to the nihilism that you were talking about earlier on yeah we must never do that we must never do that when you're in your work as a war correspondent it becomes clearly human because it's an identifiable situation and you you feel you can obviously connect with that humanity and tell those stories whereas in more complex situations somehow it is it is opaque. Well, it can be. It can be very he, he said, she said. That's the that's the problem. It can be. You know, there's kind of the sort of the, you kind of have to you know sort of go and find balance. And sometimes when you're doing that, you actually lose sight of the truth. You know, which is, for example, one group of people are shelling a bunch of civilians. There's not really he said, it's she said. It's just he shall, she shall. He shall, she shall. Just you know, that, that is the reality you have. Little pun there about people being killed by heavy artillery. Um, <laughs> Will you read us the best bit, or not the best bit, a bit that's like, you know, populare and all of that? Yeah. Um, well, so th- this book begins with uh, Christopher Steele, who's the British spy at, at the heart of all this. Uh, and I went to see him about four weeks before his famous dossier was published in January by 
BuzzFeed. Um, and I go into his office, a modest ground floor suite. So you knew this was the best bit straight away because this is a bit you do when you do readings, is it? Do you do this uh, this is the first time anyone's asked me to read from this book. So I'm, actually, I'm actually improvising. Joking. No, no, it's a bit old school reading. But anyway, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, a ground floor suite, a couple of bare rooms, painted ivory white, a coloured map of the world fixed to one wall. This is Christopher Steele's office. Lined up near the director's desk, he's the director of this business intelligence um, uh, firm, a nesting Rus- Russian dolls called Matryoshki, a souvenir from Moscow. Um, they feature Russia's great 19th century writers, Tolstoy, Gogol, Lermontov, Pushkin. Um, and I say, in the tumultuous days of 2016, the dolls were as good as, a me- as good as any metaphor for the astonishing secret investigation Steele had recently been asked to do. It was an explosive assignment to uncover the Kremlin's innermost secrets with relation to one Donald J. Trump, to unnest them one by one, like so many dolls, until the truth was finally revealed. What a lovely passage. And it had Russian dolls in it. And it had some (laughs) figures from Russian literature. I was thinking, I wanted to know what was going to happen next. (laughs) Read the book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't take it to ridiculous extremes, Luke. (laughs) Let that intrigue beguile me. (laughs) Snatch me out of my life and bury me head in language. No, no, no. I will read your book. I'll read it. when Bloody hell, mate. Come on. It's number one bestseller. What do you want? You can't want everyone in the world to read it. You You can't. Give in to that kind of ego. That's one of the things your story is are, revealing. Are you are you're lecturing me on ego? <laughs> okay. Who who is better qualified? <laughs> okay, come on. Let's get into some more stuff. Let's get into like uh, it's good. There's some proper deep gear in here. I mean, one thing one thing I didn't talk about are my experiences in Moscow. I don't know if you want to hear about those, I do but, but they, they they kind of um, helped uh, shape the book and write the book because basically, after doing all of this war that we talked about earlier. Um, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, I lived in Germany for a while. I, I did side trips to Baghdad, and then I was posted. Are you with in, family when you're doing yeah, that? with wife, wife and two kids. Well, not not in war zones, but kind of on foreign postings. And then we we, we moved to Moscow. And, and this was. I, do you remember this is the case of my? Uh, this is the subject of my previous book, a very expensive poison. I don't know if you remember the case of Alexander Litvinenko, who was a Russian desk dissident. Yeah, famously, those famously poisoned umbrella. But no, it wasn't an umbrella. It was a radioactive cup of tea uh, given by two Kremlin assassins in a hotel not too far away from here. Um, and I arrived shortly after his murder uh, and I started investigating this story. And it was made pretty clear to me in Moscow that, that, that my, my inquiries were most unwelcome and I had strange guys wearing cheap black, black leather jackets and brown shoes oh following God. following me around the icy streets of the city. And Is that a bit scary, mate? Well, hang on. I mean, that, that was that was the funny bit because that was more kind of Clouseau than KGB. I mean, that, that, was, um, uh, that, that was kind of okay because they would come and sit next to you in a cafe and y- y- it was clear. I don't they think were, I'd like that. I don't think I'd like particularly you wouldn't like that. shoes. Well, okay. So there was that. There was sort of electronic surveillance as well. So whenever the, you know, I made a kind of phone call or told a joke about Putin, there would be a kind of ominous <laughs> on the phone with a line cut. So then you, you redial, you make another joke about Putin. and <laughs> So it was all very demonstrative. The idea was to sort of show that, that they were on your case, that they were listening. Um, and, and the thing that really um, kind of disturbed us, because I was, as I said, my kids were at that point, our kids were six and nine, was we had a series of break-ins at our apartment where we live in Moscow. 
Um, and it was done in a kind of most obvious way. This is from the kind of KGB manual to show that they'd been there. And one of the things they did, for example, was when we were living on the sort of 15th floor of an, of, of an apartment block in Moscow, that they bust open the, the window next to my six-year-old son's Ikea bed with a sort of 20-meter drop to the courtyard below. So that was kind of broken and left open. In other words, implying that he might just meet with a little accident. And there was a lot of very crude stuff like that, family photos deleted. Um, and um, uh, we, we sort of sought advice from the British Embassy in Moscow, and they basically said, you are bugged. And I said, well, look, is there, is there anything you, you, can, you might do about this? Can you get rid of the bugs? And they said, well, no, no we can't. You know, have a cup of tea and a biscuit. You just have to live with it. So we had, we were basically, and, and we discovered there was video as well. So we had three and a half years under, before I was eventually deported from Russia under surveillance in the bedroom, the living room, everywhere. Um, and and the, the reason it's relevant is that when you, when you sort of, try and think about would Putin have taped Donald Trump in Moscow in 2013 you bet he would this is what they do this is what they did to me they have a whole technical department that does this stuff they're quite fixated on sexual behavior oh. uh, on one occasion they left a sex manual by our bed when we'd been away in holiday in Berlin and we came out to discover this this book in Russian uh, lying there and I, I sort of picked it up and I thought this is the most strange moment of my life what message are the KGB trying to send were you not a bit frightened mate well, it was like that window bit. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that, that what they're very good at is they sort of try and find your point of vulnerability. So for most people, it is their kids. The, you know, the idea that something might happen to your children is it's kind of really a sort of primal thing. And in my, I think the goal was basically to make me stop writing articles that they didn't like and probably to decide with my wife that it was time to pack our bags and leave moscow yeah but, uh, why but, didn't you well because, well first of all because my wife's rather cool and and independent and she? kind of feisty and and she had her own life and she was enjoying she's it she's like i like it in russia you'll have to put up with the sex manuals and the brown yeah shoes well it wasn't i mean it wasn't open windows it wasn't quite so crudely phrased but but yeah i mean you're, you're right um uh, but also i was kind of furious i mean i sort of thought well that's what they want me to do and and so actually it didn't stop my reporting in, in fact rather sort of sharpened it but what it did do was did to you include it in the reporting. I, I, I included it in my in the book I wrote after I got kicked out, which was called Mafia State, which which I wrote wrote, wrote from London. I'd been 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 expelled from that point uh, at that point. But what it did do was give me a kind of insight into into the thuggishness, the sort of crude nature of the KGB. I mean, they're very keen to sort of show that they are master, that they kind of control the situation. Um, they don't do subtle, um, and. They they kind of target people almost at random, and and the the contacts I made there, the, the way I saw how kind of the Russian intelligence kind of you know matrix works, really helped with this book on on Donald Trump. Not not because you know Trump, Trump what, he had slightly different experiences, but I kind of I understand their kind of dark worldview actually, um, so, and we survived it. Yeah. Congratulations! It sounds bloody terrifying. Now, so like sort of an aspect of Russian uh, the Russian political strata that was presumably to some degree subordinate the KGB. You're saying it's now been elevated to supreme potency in the figure of Putin. So we should expect those tactics to sort of take place on the international stage in a way they may have only done covertly or domestically. Yeah, I I mean, essentially, Putin for Putin, it's Cold War Two. He's doing it again. This time, he's determined to to sort of win. he 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 sees Russia in opposition to the United States. There's even a Russian word for it, which KGB, it's in all the KGB manuals, it's called Glavny Protivnik. 
Glavni protivnik, which means the main adversary. Glavni protivnik. That, that's that's really how Putin v- v- views views the U.S. and views the U.K. as a kind of little sidekick of the Glavni protivnik. Yeah. Um, and um, he's doing a pretty good job of prevailing. I mean, how do you he, win a Cold War. I mean, like, well, you you don't necessarily win, but what you want to you, you want to do, you opponent. want to keep keep your uh, enemy in a state of, of perpetual weakness and and disarray. Uh, and they're pretty good at that. They're so pretty good saying, at that. You said earlier, mate, that the, the sort of American Secret Service community regarded this as a sort of an inconceivable masterstroke. What's occurred that there's sort of a spirit of chaos has been uh, unleashed in an uh, American. I, I, I wouldn't. Life. Putin didn't do the unleashing. I mean, the chaos was there. He, he 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 just took advantage of it basically. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's in a way it's kind of quite crude, but it's quite effective. I mean, he had. Gangs, they've got this troll factory, this famous troll factory in St. Petersburg, where there are, there are gangs of sort of cynical students earning $15,000 a year who post comments in, in pretty good English on Western websites praising Putin or, or, or adopting kind of talking points. They did it on The Guardian for years and years and years. And during the American election, these Russian students called Sergei were pretending to, to be Texan housewives called Karen, uh, writing about, you know, tweeting... Um, gifts of Donald Trump dropping a Mexican in the bin and saying, you know, cheerio pal, you know, stirring up passions over immigration, pretending to be activists from Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and loads of... Activists from Black yeah, Lives Matter. And loads of... I am Karen. Uh, yeah, loads of other Americans were, were gleefully retweeting this stuff, seeing it on their Facebook pages, liking it, thinking, oh, look, Karen, you know, I, I, like, I agree with Karen. And Karen is really Sergey. <laughs> and so... You, you don't need to be a genius. You just need to be a kind of opportunist um, and you need a little bit of luck. So these, that you, I suppose, that even these sort of slightly comedic acts of like, espi- would, you, would that even warrant the title espionage? Well, it's know? sort of subterfuge, really. Subterfuge. Yeah, subterfuge. It has an impact on the sort of feeling of being American or it permits, new, so it permits a different kind of discourse. It's what I was saying earlier. It's the war for the mind. It's kind of almost sort of it's sharpening what's already in your head. And it's kind of and, and actually, if you kind of micro target, if, if you look at swing states, you can have quite an influence. Now, what's interesting is that sort of you know, everyone's on Facebook and Facebook said initially, no. That the 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 Russians, it, what Russians? What are you talking about? And then subsequently came back to Congress two months ago saying, "Uh, yeah, we we found all these accounts paid for in rubles from Moscow, where, yeah, they were actually pretending to be activists or pro-Trump supporters, but really they were Russian citizens." Do you think then, if that that something is sort of broadly like something as comedic as that can be effective in the war for mental space, then what? We can can we speculate as to what the impact is of that the ongoing the uh, uh, what do I want to, how do I want to term this the sort of maintenance of the dominion of a sort of a capitalist consumer culture how we're continually how our thoughts are marshaled controlled how we're continually stimulated marketed at you know like so what do you think of those as you're obviously an excellent and dig- diligent storyteller you're probably one of the best people doing this i'm guessing if you look from me just for me in your cv you've done edward snowden you've done the in paradise papers you've done the collusion with russia what do you think um what do you think of you know, see, like these, this is an anomaly, isn't it? Like, it seems to me that just different people are getting a little go at telling the story, but they're really only using sort of they're using techniques that existed before, in a sense. They they're 
in a way, have aims and ends that aren't that different from sort of previous, I don't want to say administrations, but it seems like previous movements, previous movements in American life, say the last 30 years of what's happened that's probably created this state of disillusionment and disenfranchisement where the mind can be sharpened to a point of nationalism. Yeah. So what do you think about like that? those kind of stories that are sort of so pervasive that they're harder to identify. Do you think it starts to sound a bit too wacky and conspiratorial? You know, because I feel that that's what's the reason. What I'm interested in, Luke, is this that that my again uh, intuitive sense is that the the the, the oft made connection between Brexit and Trump is a reasonable one in that you have swathes of people feeling a sense that they are lacking purchase, that they have had enough, and. My fear and concern is that by diagnosing the anomaly as the problem, we prevent people from analysing the preceding conditions that inevitably led towards it. And why I'm fascinated by people pointing out like more covert, more insidious forms of tyranny, such as what preceded Trump, interests me. Do you like... Well, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I take your point, uh, but I, I do, I do think that these two things can can both go on. I mean, the the, the external conditions, call it call it like that, that produce Brexit, absolutely are real, and and they are primarily British, um, and and we we can talk about them forever. And and there are people who are genuinely disillusioned and have good reason to be kind of fed up with the system and the state. All of that is true. But at the same time, it's perfectly valid to see whether, for example, Sergei in St. Petersburg was also setting up an account uh, tweeting in favor of Brexit, because we know that that is the case. There were various kind of mm-hmm. trolls pretending to be Brits, micro-targeting leave-leaning voters during the run-up to the election, and that, that Putin is very delighted with Brexit because it weakens the European Union, it weakens the UK, uh, and that that's all to his advantage as he sees it. And there are also question marks about where the money came from behind the Leave campaign. That, that I mean, it may all have been legitimate donations from 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 noble business people, but but there's a lot of it has been rooted through offshore, and it's kind of terribly opaque. So, I, I think we can we can diagnose the social ills in our own country, but also be alert to the possibility of external manipulation, whether it's from Russia or indeed from anywhere else. Because it's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, and it, it is it is a conundrum because if we if we lose faith in democracy, if we lose faith in 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 the possibility of a, a decent or a better society, if we lose faith in each other, wh- where do we go? And the thing about Putin is that he is a kind of supreme nihilist. He 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 likes those conditions where where people end up believing in nothing because that suits his sort of agenda because he, he can do his sovereign thing without yeah. anyone calling him out so yeah, so i think we we, we 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 do need to believe in something uh, but we do need to be honest um uh, about what's going on and presumably you know having lived in russia i suppose there's a sense that i imagine it if there is going to be a geopolitical <laughs> struggle on the ultimate scale probably would prefer things to be how they are in Britain than Russia, having lived there and yeah. had those Russian porno mags planted. Yeah, room, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was actually a book on sex and relationships, but uh, they had... But, they, they, quite they, they did leave... They did leave a, it was bookmarked... Well, maybe we can help their marriage while they're here. We well, well right, it, it was bookmarked to a page on orgasms, so uh-huh. I think they were trying to tell me... Male it, or female? 
Well, it was, it was supposed to be, you know, both. And I think, it, I don't know whether they were making a comment about frequency or technique or, <laughs> or, or kind of inconsistency or I'm, I'm not sure. Cheek. But basically they were saying, you know, we are watching you. What but, if they're well-intended? What if we re- reposition Putin as a well-intending sort of avuncular figure that's simply trying to help you with your sex life and America? I, you know what? I think, I think you should get him on your show and you can talk to him and then you can decide. No, I, I, I can but imagine. But one thing I certainly agree with you on, Luke, is that we cannot afford to become disenchanted with the potential for democracy to be effective. Uh, because I think that that, in my own diagnosis, which I, I would happily admit is from limited resources, it feels to me that this despair is what has contributed to these disjuncts, to these sort of sort of horrifying moments for it culturally, whatever side of those divides you stand on. Even when I, you know, people are marching in Charlottesville, when there's sort of outbursts of rage and loathing and sort of, sort of targeted at minorities, I, you know, I feel, I feel afraid. But I, for what I sense is that the solution it is to have an effective democracy, and my worry about something that's such a, a, a an evident aberration, 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 such as Trump, such as Brexit, is that people won't look at what preceded it, because I feel that that's the platform upon which these things rest. For sure, and, and I think you're right, but I think we have to kind of keep calm. I mean, but without being too kind of platitudinous we we have to kind of love each other but we, we do have to kind of interrogate reality and and try and make sense of it and tell good stories yes i think you're right and you're certainly doing that thank you very much for the brilliant work that you've done as a journalist and as a writer and bringing stories that are complex and difficult to understand to a, a wider audience i think it's great work that you're doing and it's obviously taken a great deal of bravery particularly what you've undertaken in war conditions and under kind of level of scrutiny in Russia I don't think I'd enjoy it. I think I'd really freak out. But but just to say that the really brave people in the story are, are they're not, not not people like me with a foreign passport. They're 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 Russians or other people in, in, in states where human rights are not so great because that they, they, they pay a bigger price very often. They they take take risks. Some of the people I knew, journalists, politicians, have since been kind of murdered. Are and, you kidding? And, and, no, I'm not. So so I, I sort of think we, we we should sort of salute people inside those countries who are trying to peacefully to kind of change things for the better because they're, they're tremendously brave mm, thank you very much yeah that's a, a beautiful thought to end on thank you luke <laughs> thank you i really enjoyed it was a good chat wasn't it that we had it was great i was surprised that you'd not been asked to read before why is that not happening i, I think that went out about 20 years ago <laughs> people don't do stuff like no that. not much this in a sense is a nostalgic medium it's a long form interview I, I, I love it i absolutely love it well thank you so much for your time mate. thank you thanks luke this show was also sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon. You can also get the audiobook on Audible. And check me out live moving about before your very face on my Rebirth Tour, Harrogate, December the 12th. It's going to be a good night there. Newcastle, 14th of December. It's going to be a, a corking. Well, it's going to be cold, isn't it? But it's going to be fantastic also. And Brixton, December the 19th. Tickets are available at russellbrand.com. Dot com. Finally, if you like this show and this series of adverts at the end of it, please subscribe and review it on iTunes or wherever you get it. Just give it five stars, five gleaming, glistening stars of approval that I'll drink down inside me and thrive. Thank you.